So as most of you probably know, I was born up and brought up in a Christian family, so I spent quite a lot of time going to different Sunday schools and youth groups and stuff like that as I was growing up. And often at youth groups at kind of Christmas time you have a, a sort of party where you play some good Christian games. And one of those good Christian games that we used to play was a game called Balloon Stomp Game. Some of you may know it well. So basically everyone gets a balloon, you blow it up, you tie a piece of string around it and put it around your ankle. And the idea is that you have to try and burst everyone else's balloons while protecting your own. So everyone's got the, the balloons on their ankles and the, the last man standing with the balloon intact is the winner. Now, as you can imagine, it gets to be a fair bit of carnage as everyone's going around stomping on these balloons and everyone gets a bit annoyed as their balloons are popped. How do you think you feel towards the winner at the end of that game? Do you celebrate and rejoice with them in their victory? Or do you remember the, the kind of underhand tactics that they've used to win the game. It's not fair. It's a kind of a typical example of the world we live in. We live in this competitive, materialistic world where everyone's kind of almost stomping on each other's balloons and trying to get to the top, trying to make themselves look better than others by whatever means necessary. And today I want to contrast this with the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God isn't a meritocracy, so it's not about what we do. It's not about achieving our salvation and achieving our favor with God. Instead, we are people that have been chosen by God. Just as we've been focusing on this morning, we are people that are loved by God. We're saved by grace. We're not saved by works, not by what we do. And the passage I want to have a look at today is a passage in John 3, starting from verse 22. So John 3, verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside, where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John, that's John the Baptist, also was baptizing at Anan near Salim, because there was plenty of water and people were constantly coming to be baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, well, he's baptizing, and everyone's going to him. To this, John replied, a man can receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, but I'm sent ahead of him, ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and now it is complete. He must become greater, and I must become less. So I want to start by speaking a bit about envy. You can see in this passage here that John John the Baptist's disciples are envious of Jesus and envious of the fact that he's now getting more attention and seeing more people coming to him than, than they are. They've been hanging around with this radical man, John the Baptist, who is almost like the, the biggest craze, the latest big thing that everyone's been speaking about. And by association, it's almost like they've elevated themselves and their position as well in society. 
But suddenly there's this other big attraction in town. Suddenly Jesus is taking their place. He's doing the very thing that's made John the Baptist noticed. And worse, more people are now coming to Jesus than are coming to John. And envy, this kind of envy, is is something I think that we see throughout our culture. So we can be envious of the colleague who's been promoted ahead of us. It doesn't seem fair. It should have been me. Or we can be envious of the mum with the bugaboo pram at the school gate. Or the neighbour with the, the new Mercedes. How can he afford that? He must be a tax avoider, surely. <laughs> I'm revealing my inner heart to you, sorry. <laughs> or the man with the big house on St. Bernard's Road. He must be a drug dealer. And it can even creep into our church, I think, as well. So when new people come along with giftings that are similar to ours, we can almost feel a little bit threatened. Here comes someone who might start to take my place at leading worship or preaching or singing or prophesying or whatever else. They might start to to look better than than me. I might not have my, my key position anymore. We can start to have that kind of envy in church as well, I think. Similarly, envy is is something that we see throughout the Bible. It's an age-old thing. Right at the very start of the Bible, we see the two brothers, Cain and Abel. And Abel's sacrifice is accepted by God. And Cain's isn't, and he's jealous of his brother. He's envious. And as we know the rest of the story, he actually ends up killing his brother. Similarly, Joseph's brothers as well. They're envious that he's the chosen one, that he's the one that gets this coat of many colors from his father, that he's the one that gets these visions and dreams. King Saul as well. King Saul was someone who had so much. He was a king after all, and he was a mighty warrior who had done so many amazing things, and God had actually used him in that nation. But yet suddenly David comes along. And David has an even greater faith in God and sees even more amazing things happen. And the people start to sing this song. Saul is killed as thousands, but David is killed as tens of thousands. And the envy burns up within Saul. He's angry. And he wants to kill David. It's so easy to slip into this envy. And yet... It actually has so many downsides, so many consequences for us. I want to quickly look at three consequences for us. First of all, it carries with it a certain misery. As we compare ourselves to others, as we begin to feel deficient and defective in that comparison, perhaps we feel we haven't done as well with our lives as we we think we might have done. We convince ourselves, perhaps like... Uh, Joseph's brothers that were not loved as much by our parents. I remember growing up, I would compare myself to my brothers and, my, and to my sisters as well in a lesser extent, but my brothers were older than me and they'd done their exams first and they'd, they'd done well on their exams and suddenly I felt, I guess, well, they were getting praised for this, so I kind of felt there was a pressure that I had to do well on exams as well. Otherwise, maybe my parents would be disappointed with me Maybe my parents, in some bizarre way, wouldn't love me as much. 
But that's kind of what it's like. But when we do achieve things, it's almost like a hollow victory or a hollow kind of celebration in the end. Often this envy goes further and leads to resentment and hate. So Saul burned with anger at David's success. And Cain, as we've looked, as we discussed, killed Abel when his sacrifice was accepted. We've looked a few times recently at the story of the prodigal son. And again, when you see with the, the elder brother, he was envious when his brother returned. When his brother had the party, his brother was forgiven by his father and his father has this big party for him. And he's, he's envious rather than joining in the party. He chooses to go off by himself and be miserable. Envy makes us angry and dejected when others succeed, but we experience a hollow rejoicing when they fail. The second thing is, if you take this even further, it brings an aloneness. So again, if you think of the elder brother, he took himself off by himself. He refused to to kind of come and be with everyone else. Cain, God said to Cain, you'll be a restless wanderer on the earth. As part of our envy, we push others away from us. We almost start to assume rejection before it even comes. In their first big single, Radiohead, the band sang, there's a song called Creep, they sang, I wish I was special, you're so very special, but I'm a creep, I'm a weirdo. What am I doing here? I don't belong here. Originally, this song was rejected by Radio 1, They found it too depressing. (laughs) But eventually, almost like underground, it it kind of grew up slowly and became a worldwide hit. It resonated with so many people. I wonder if you ever walk into a new environment, a sports club, a mums and toddlers group, a new job, even a new church, and already you're thinking, I won't fit in here. No one's going to like me. I'm not good enough to be here. Constantly, I think we make these comparisons to other people, whether it's subconscious or whether it's consciously. It might not even feel like envy at times, but it leads to an insecurity. It leads to a fear of us not being chosen, of not being good enough. And it leads to an emptiness and an aloneness. And the third thing I think that happens with envy is that I think we start falling into judgment as well. Again, think of the the elder brother. When his father does come to him, he says to his father, all these days I've done the right thing. I've been a good boy. I've been here working for you. And this brother of mine has wasted everything. He's squandered it. And yet you throw him a party. We want to show that we are better than others. We want to, in this competitive world, we've got to constantly compare ourselves to others, we feel and show where we are on the ladder. Sometimes this remains internal. As part of my job, I often have to interview people. And I did an interview training course a few years ago to learn how to to go about this. And one of the things, one of the key things I remember about that course was they said to us, everyone has prejudices 
And you've got to learn what those prejudices are, or else you're not going to be able to do a fair assessment in the interview. And I thought that's, that's so true of myself, and I'm sure it's true of everyone, as they said. We do have preconceptions. We do judge people by how, for example, I would constantly judge people how they appear. So if they're too well-dressed, then maybe they are vain or materialistic. If they're not well enough dressed, if they're not smart enough, then clearly they're, they're lazy or they're riffraff or something. If they're too revealing in their dress, well, obviously they're a little bit loose or whatever. <laughs> if they're too conservative in their dress, well, obviously they're a bit prudish. <laughs> you can't hit a middle ground, can you, with these things? Sometimes our judgment goes external as well. We begin to gossip about other people. Do you, do you know what they did? Have you seen, have you heard about such and such a person? Again, we want to make them look worse than us, and we want to make ourselves look slightly better. The world does it all the time. You only have to look in the newspapers to see examples of these sort of things. We're envious of celebrities. We're envious of the rich bankers. And so we seek to knock them down. We seek to judge them. We're better than them, aren't we? We seek to stomp on their balloon. You know, the interesting thing about judgment is that we're always stricter judges of others than we are of ourselves. So I think if I'm driving along in my car and someone flies past me at 80 miles an hour, then clearly they're an idiot. Whereas when I'm driving along at 80 miles an hour (laughs) and passing other people, I'm doing it for a good reason. I'm late for an appointment or... Anyway, it doesn't matter. I'm perfect control. I'm a good driver. I can drive at 80 miles an hour. It's fine. And perhaps that's why Jesus instructed us to take the log out of our own eye before we take the speck out of our brothers. It's the same passage, Matthew 7, that he also said, judge not, lest ye be judged. Jesus came to bring an alternative to all this. And what I want to do now is contrast that. Contrast the world and and this kind of constant comparison that goes on in the world, this envy, this judgment, with what Jesus talked about with the kingdom of God, the alternative way. Now, I don't want to obviously condemn this morning. There's no point in me saying to you, don't be envious, don't judge people. Because as I've kind of had this been thinking about this over the last few weeks, I've realized and kind of checked myself so many times falling into to these very traps of being envious. I don't think it's something that we can just stop in our own strength. Instead, I think it's something that God has to work in us. It comes, I'm going to look at two different things, but the first one is it comes from knowing that we are chosen, from knowing that we are loved by God, just as Rob was talking about a minute ago as well with fear. There's no point in telling you not to be fearful. It's as we begin to come into an understanding of God's love, an understanding of God's chosenness, that these feelings of envy, these comparisons drop off. Ephesians 1, verses 4 to 5, it says, Even before he made the world, God loved us, and chose us in Christ to be holy 
and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. He contrasts this with what we've just been talking about. God, first of all, loves each of us. John Ortberg says that when he's talking about this, that that God's love is, is limitless. He says, my chosenness never comes at someone else's expense. God loves each of his children with infinite uniqueness. It's not a competition. It's not limited in terms of the the size of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, in terms of how many people can come in. It's unconditional. God doesn't love me any more or less because of what I do. It says in this passage that he chose us in Christ before he even made the world. And it gives him a great pleasure. And there's a real freedom that comes with this. Again, think of the elder brother in the prodigal son story. Imagine if he'd grasped hold of this. If he'd grasped hold of the fact that his father's love was not conditional on what he'd been doing all that time. But also that the fact that his brother was having a party didn't exclude him from having a party. His father said to him, everything I've got is yours. You can have a party whenever you want. The prodigal son didn't have to go into that envious misery place. His father loved him. His father had chosen him just as much as he'd chosen his brother. He could have had a party whenever he wanted. And the second thing, so that's knowing that we're chosen in God. The second thing is knowing that God has a role for each one of us to play. If we look again back at this passage that we started off with, with John the Baptist. So in verse 25, it looks like there's some sort of argument that's developed. And it looks like John's disciples have basically formed or kind of fallen into the trap of legalism and starting to judge others. So they're envious and they, and they start having this argument about ceremonial washing. And then immediately after that, they come to John the Baptist and say, He's baptizing and everyone's going to him. He wants, the, what are you going to do about it, John? That's pretty much what they're saying to him. You better put a stop to this. He's becoming bigger than us. And I love John's response. He doesn't get drawn in this at all. But rather, he gives them an example, first of all, about a, a bridegroom and his best man, basically. That's the kind of modern equivalent that we would have. So when someone's getting married, I was a best man once, quite a number of years ago, <laughs> and before I was married. And I wasn't envious of my, my friend. He was my best friend. Why would I be envious of him? Instead, there's a joy. A joy that your, your best friend has, has, has found his soulmate, has found this lady that is just perfect for him and that he's going to marry. And that's the example that John gives. Complete joy. What does he say in verse 29? He says, that joy is mine. The joy that a bride, that the best man has for the bridegroom. That joy is mine. And now it's complete. He must become greater. I must become less. John the Baptist knew exactly what his role was. 
He was the one that was preparing the way for the Christ. And when, when Jesus came and he began to be glorified, John realized he'd done his job, that he'd pointed the way to Jesus being the Christ, and it gave him joy. Similarly, each of one of us has a role to play. God has given us a gifting. God has given us something to do. There's a famous passage in, in 1 Corinthians 12 where Paul begins to compare the church of God to, to a body with many different parts. And he says, If the foot says, I'm not part of the body because I'm not a hand, that does not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, I'm not a part of the body because I'm not an eye, would that make it any less a part of the body? If the whole body were an eye, how would you hear? Or if your whole body were an ear, how would you smell anything? But the body is of many parts, and God has put each part just where he wants it. Each one of us has a part to play. God has given each one of us a gifting. And rather than looking at others and being envious of it, in the kingdom of God, I think he calls us to instead, first of all, know what our gifting are, but certainly, but secondly, see what other people's giftings are as well. Encourage others, build them up, recognize those callings and celebrate those successes. With this comes the joy, the joy that John the Baptist also had. And with this also comes a praise. I think we could begin to then realize what God has given us and turn our praises back to him. Realize what God has put into us. So we looked at two different kingdoms. First of all, we've looked at essentially what happens in the world so often, where we see people being envious of one another, where we see judgment, where we see people striving to succeed at the expense of others, where we see so much misery and aloneness. And I kind of contrasted that with the culture of love, a culture of encouragement, a culture of, of joy. I started off with that example of people of the balloon stomping game, where people go in and try and burst on each other's balloons. Fraser got his first board game for Christmas. And uh, essentially, it's based on the three little pigs. So uh, what you've got to do is you go around the board and you've got to collect a straw house and a wooden house and a brick house. And you've got to beware of the... Steve's played this game as well. He enjoyed it thoroughly. <laughs> I can't remember that. <laughs> um, so yeah, you've got to avoid the big bad wolf because he uh, can blow your house down, but obviously he can't blow down the brick house. Um, so Fraser and I were playing this game and we'd each collected all the houses and the last bit is you've got to get to the middle of the board and the first person to the middle is the winner. So essentially we had a race to the middle because we'd collected our houses. And Fraser got there first now, rather than kind of doing a little dance of joy or doing a big loser sign at me or pulling his T-shirt over his head and running around the room in celebration, those are all the things I'd have done, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> rather than doing that, he said to me, you have one more go, Daddy. So I, had, I rolled the dice again, and I joined him in the middle, and he said to me, yes, you've won too, Daddy. 
You contrast that with the, the balloon game, the stomping on others' balloons. And I think it's such a, a powerful image. In the world, it can only be one winner. In the world, there's this competition to get to the top. But in God's kingdom, it's the opposite. We all are chosen. We are all loved by God. He has a plan and purpose for each one of us. Let's just pray. Lord, I thank you for the truth of those words in Ephesians. Lord, I thank you that even before you made the world, you chose each one of us, that you loved us. I thank you that you loved us so much that you sent your son to die for us so that we could come back into relationship with you. And I thank you, as it says at the end of that bit that I read out, it gives you great pleasure to do that. It's what you wanted to do. Lord, I pray that you begin to turn this from head knowledge into heart knowledge. Lord, as we rest in your love, as we rest in your presence, may this become embedded in our hearts. Lord, that we will be a people set free, a people set free from the things of this world, from the ways of this world, and instead that we be a people where your kingdom reigns. Lord, let heaven come down on earth. Let your will be done here as we grasp hold of this. Thank you, Father. Amen.